Jetty folk take care of Jetty folk. And if you ever have a chance to lick a coyote on the nose, I would really recommend it as an outdoor activity. You should have seen that fish run. And I was like, man, first off, don't ever buy a gun at Stop and Go. And if you do, don't buy it for 20 <laughs> You're like a superstar because everybody who's on the jetties watching comes down and wants to take a picture with your fish. Like, they want to hold the fish and act like they caught it. And then they, like, are clapping and everything whenever you reel the fish in. I feel like I'm talking to myself. But I got y'all live as uh, I'm here with Shane. And we'll do some introductions in a little bit. We're at the uh, Texas Sea uh, Center, Texas, in Lake Jackson. Uh, Going to talk a little bit about Sabine Skiffs, hunting and fishing, and then obviously with the weather going on, we're going to talk about some of the hatchery, uh, what the facility's doing here. And then Shane, well, he'll tell his background, uh, has a lot of biologist knowledge. And uh, so, yeah, if you're all bored at home, stay with us. We're going to talk skiffs, might get a little boring. Hopefully we can talk fishing, hunting, and then uh, talk about what's going on in Texas right now. So I'm just going to let y'all go uh, live, and then Shane's about to start recording, and he'll go in in the intro about uh, where you can listen to this later. So. All right, folks. Well, we're we're live. I hit play already. Uh, welcome to the Coastal Advocacy Adventures podcast. My guest here this afternoon is Brian Little with Sabine Skiffs. I've been kind of stalking Brian on social media for a little while and we've exchanged some messages and thought it would be a good opportunity to come down to Lake Jackson, come to the hatchery at Sea Center, Texas here, and do this podcast and then talk about a lot of the things that Brian just mentioned. We're, we're going to start off with a little bit of background information on both of us, and then we'll roll into uh, Sabine Skiffs and, and what they're all about. And then, as he mentioned, we'll talk hunting and fishing and conservation and uh, dabble into a little bit of, of what this current um, situation that we're dealing with with the freeze and what that might look like for our fisheries so glad you're here glad you're listening or watching on on brian's social media uh, we're ha happy to be able to do this here and first of all i want to thank sea center texas for having us and letting us use their space and it's much appreciated since a lot of places don't have power or water or some of the amenities that that they have here so thanks much to sea center so we'll start off i'm shane Bonneau. i work for coastal conservation association i do their advocacy I'm their in-house uh, biologist and fisheries policy uh, personnel. I operate under a, an entire committee of uh, C-Center, I mean, uh, CCA volunteers that, that help guide decisions and policies for the organization. So I spend quite a bit of time in meetings talking with Parks and Wildlife or uh, governmental agencies, quite a bit of time at the Texas Capitol when, when the legislature is in session. And then um, quite a bit of time talking to members out on the streets, uh, going to general membership meetings or uh, angler night outs, those sorts of things, talking to our CCA Texas uh, volunteers and members. So that's a little bit about me, and I'm going to turn it over to Brian. Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, even as starting off as a, as a young buck sure. and get yep. to where you are now? For sure. Uh, Brian Little, uh, owner-operator of Sabine's Gifts, located in the Kima, Texas area. Uh, born and raised in Columbus, Texas. Um, my dad was uh, and families w were farmers and ranchers, you know, growing up. So uh, my dad managed, you know, ranch on the same ranch from when I was born to when I was like 16 years old. He stayed on it over 20 years. So have a, a knowledge of, you know, wildlife and ranching and always fished growing up, always hunted. That was just our pastime. You know, if we were going somewhere, we usually had a rod and reel in the truck, you know. Um, from there, went to college. Uh, 
graduated Columbus High School in 97, so that kind of dates myself. Went to college in Beaumont, um, a civil engineering degree was uh, what I went there to do, and a run track, so kind of got pushed into that direction. And then um, that's kind of where I started the the boat design was in college. We'll maybe hit on that a little bit later. Um, one rule my parents said when I went to college is you can't have a boat through college because they knew <laughs> they knew <laughs> they that if I oh yeah they knew if I had the boat then I wouldn't be studying. But every summer I stayed in the area and worked. So I fished Sabine Lake uh, through piers or wade fishing until I graduated and bought my boat and then started shopping for different types of boats that I wanted to you know fly fish in and whatever and basically started building my own because I couldn't afford really what I wanted. So the passion for the boats came from building what I needed for myself and then you know went from there I stayed in engineering and construction for whatever till about five years ago when we really started uh, producing the first Sabine skiffs but I've been manufacturer one off in boats since about 0203 so about every three to four five years I would build me a new boat I would either sell the old one cut it up with a chainsaw which still makes my wife cringe, uh-huh. or, you know, uh, but yeah, about every fourth or fifth year, I would build me a new boat, and until I got into production, and went so from you, there. Would you, sell, you, would you sell any of those? I did. I, I The first one I actually saw, it's a scooter boat. I wasn't hardcore fly fishing. It was a 12-foot scooter boat, all synthetic composite, Kevlar bottom, fiberglass, epoxy built. It's still in Port O'Connor, the same guy I sold it to, uh, which was when we got married 13 years ago. We have wedding pictures on it. About a week later, I delivered it. But anyway, um, yeah, that same owner still has it. I saw it in Port O'Connor. I tried to get a hold of him because I want to buy it back. Yeah. And uh, just have. But, yeah, I did. So that one I sold. The one after that, I I cut apart to just look at it. And then, you know, a few after that I've sold. uh, Yeah. One of my friends in in Georgia still, he owns my last one-off boat and then just bought another Sabine. So I want to say the first one first uh, Sabine I saw well I know for sure the first one I saw was just up the road from here off Plantation Drive in Lake Jackson at the Bucky's mm-hmm. and I was still working here at Sea Center at the time so it, it would have been 2014 to 2000 early 2016 somewhere in there right and the guy was filling up his truck and I was looking for I was leaving Bucky's and I was like holy moly look at that rig I was like <laughs> that thing is pretty dang awesome yeah. so I gotta meet this guy so I, uh, I said, hey, man, nice skiff. And he said, you know what? Thanks for calling it a skiff and not a boat. And he's like, I appreciate that. Right. And so that was the first, uh, that was the first one. And I, I guess, I don't know if that was one that you actually had owned or, or produced. But, yeah, by then, uh, well, I just have to go back in time. But, yeah, it could have been one of the first production Sabines, yeah. you know. And it was, uh, it, was a, it was a green or yellow or beige-ish. Right, um, yeah tone color but anyways uh from then i had a like my initial first impression was that's pretty dang cool looking rig i like it well it's funny that i don't know how many i don't see how many i sold but myself and some of my clients when they're getting gas either before they're fishing or afterwards so many people walk up to them like the place of conversation is at a gas station you know that they walk up man nice boat and touch it feel it you know whatever look around it or, or they because we're so small, we don't, we're not a dealership base. We're custom built, you know, per customer, you know, you order your boat and we deliver it, you know, to you, not a dealership. But, um, because we don't have a dealer network and we're in Houston. So some people in Rockport might not have a chance to see one all the time, you know, 
So, but they might if they're at the gas station right. or at the yeah. HEV in, in Rockport. And, yeah. you know, 30 minutes later, I leave because <laughs> I'm sitting there <laughs> talking to someone about a boat, trying to fill up to go fishing or, or whatever. Better so be keeping a stack of business yeah. cards in that truck. Exactly. So, yeah, that's part of it. So you started, you know, after doing the one-offs, you went into, you decided to make, to, I guess, quit your day yes. job and go full-time. So, so, what, what so the progression with that is, um, you know, and we can go back all the way to college or whatever, but, uh, but yeah, built one-offs. And when I, when I built the first one, the scooter boat, I, um, I got to talking with uh, a bunch of vendors, you know, material vendors, um, you know. But the big thing I did in college, my senior project was studying composite designs and stuff. It was for a concrete canoe competition, but still I would call all these fiberglass carbon companies. So I kind of had a relationship already from college. And, you know, you get to, you get to talking to them where they're like, well, this is where you need to go to buy it because we just make it. Well, then you talk to the, the, the people that sell it and they're like, well, Brian, do you have a company? If you had a company, I could sell it to you at this price versus oh, or this. So getting the first materials in bulk was the reason I formulated the company. Well, then it was like, well, this is how much it costs. This is how much I could sell it for. This is a potential business model, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, I was in civil engineering, had no startup capital. I wasn't a business major, didn't know how to run a business, you know. But uh, but that's, I had the company, Ultralight Boatworks, which is still what I work under today. Sabine Skiffs is a brand of Ultralight Boatworks. Yeah. And that, that company was formulated in like 04, 05 or something, you know. Um, so, yeah, so the company, I always had it, always kept it legit, never really used it for anything for years. Uh, but I went through Coast Guard, got all that set up, you know, got my whole identification numbers. You know, I had that done, like, whatever, over a decade ago. But um, so it wasn't until we moved back to, uh, from c- different construction projects and, and jobs back to Houston and where I live now in Bay Vista. And um, that I met one of my neighbors who saw my last one-off skiff, the last composite boat. And we hadn't done anything in aluminum yet. But I had this idea that from years before that, that a no-hull slap skiff or polling boat or any boat, it didn't matter what the material was made of or what the hull was made of, um, whether it was a high-end carbon fiber, foam core composite, Kevlar, fiberglass, aluminum, wood, concrete, whatever. It's the shape in the hull entry that keeps the... Um, the momentum of the waves, I guess it deadens it, so you don't have the whole slap. Mm-hmm. With la- I'm not a wordsmith, so me describing that is not very accurate. But basically, it doesn't matter what what the boat is made of. It's, it's how the how water's displaced. It's how it's designed. Yeah. So I've I've told some of my friends like I think I can make an aluminum Poland skiff with no whole slap, and this was way before I made the first Sabine, probably close to ten years ago, maybe more. But um, and I almost did it over a decade ago when I lived in Nederland. I almost bought my welders and just did it myself. Um, but I didn't. So anyway, so I, when I was in Bay Vista, uh, a guy two houses down, we became friends. He saw my boat, and we had a lot in common, fishing and hunting. And then he um, he said, man, you need to come to my shop, check out what we do, what I do for a living. And, uh, you know, you, you build stuff, you'd appreciate it. So one weekend, we load up his truck, went to his shop, and he builds oil and gas supply equipment and exploration equipment all over the world. And... Uh, and he's like, we built some boats. And I was like, you have the people and the stuff. Yeah. Let's do this. He said, look, you you design these. What do you do? You draw, you sketch them up. I said, no, I do AutoCAD, 2D, though, not 3D. He says, put a design together. Come to us. Let's look at it. So they did a little kind of a miniature 3D model. And uh, they didn't really finish it, but they did enough to know materials and stuff. And 
as a team, we just teamed up and we built the first one. And um, I put it on the water. I, I, after seeing it, I showed a few pictures online for like a you know a day or two and then deleted them because mm-hmm. all my friends all over on Facebook, all over the U.S. Um, from Florida, I guess you could say, all the coastal guys were just like, "You're on to something." Yeah, delete. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I tested the boat. I said, "I'm gonna go." It wasn't painted. I just put a friend's motor on it. And I drove down to Surfside to the small little boat ramp right off the intercoastal. Yeah. And I said, it was cold winter day. I said, no one's going to be here. We and one of my good buddies drove it around. And he brought his camera equipment. We put it in the water and went and ran it. <clears throat> and everything ran good. Pulled, you know, quiet. Which, I mean, I was so nervous because I had a lot of money invested in this mm-hmm. boat at this time. And it did what it went to do or said, you know, what I thought it was going to do. Got back to the boat ramp. And sure enough, there's someone I knew. Hey, Brian, you know. <laughs> well, luckily, he's you know, a nice guy. And I, I needed a third guy because he was there to actually help with pictures. Because with two people, you know. So, anyway, my yeah. third guy got on the on the bank while the guy who I was hoping to hide from everybody, you know, he jumped in the boat. And we pulled it around. And um, that boat sat in my garage, unfinished, unpainted, until I was just kind of wrapping my head around what we're going to do with this for about six months, maybe nine months. Finished painting it, finished rigging it. Um, at the time, the oil and gas industry went into a good direction for my friend, bad direction for me, because he said, well, the shop space it takes to build this boat, like, I need it to build our parts. Yeah. So no big deal. You know, we're still good buddies and friends. And I just formulated a, a team, and we started building ourselves. Changed a few designs, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, actually, out of the blue, had a friend eating dinner with Scott Summerlot, and uh, Scott just mentioned over dinner that he would uh, wish or wish someone would build, you know, aluminum Poland skiff. Cause even he thought he, the same thing I was thinking, it's not the materials, it's the shape. Mm-hmm. And his buddy texted me and said, you know, do I mind, you mind if I show Scott pictures of your boat? Cause he's just out of the blue, just mentioned aluminum Poland skiff. Nope. Sent the pictures to him, some more pictures and stuff. And two to three days later, Scott's at my house demoing that boat. And, you know, a few weeks later, I had that one sold, but on the water, Scott was like, yes, probably shouldn't tell you this because the price went up, but we're going to build one, yeah. you know. So formulated a, a new team to build them, got a facility, you know, and all, all this, I'm doing engineering work. I'm still in oil and gas. Um, you know, we were remodeling a house. My wife's, you know, all of her focus was on the house. But now that we're starting a new venture, she was pretty much my admin at home. All our new vendors, she was setting up for me. You're back in Bay Vista. This so. is all Bay Vista. So I always call it the headquarters because that's kind of where the majority of the, the business was ran there for years. You know, we didn't build them there. But she helped me, you know, did a lot of admin stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, built the website, did the social media stuff. And, yeah, you build the first one. Then the second one's, you know, first production boat um, was for myself. And then just word of mouth, well, this guy wants one. So, and you're nervous because you don't you don't have a clientele yet. Yeah. You know, you're not yeah. going to go to dealerships. So, and the the people just came one after another. Uh, word of mouth. I mean, the first year we didn't build, but like six or seven, you know. And then the second year just went more and more, and the more boat shows you go to and fishing shows and like anything, like the more that are driving around at the mm-hmm. gas station, you know, someone else finds out about it. And we still have our work cut out as far as marketing, <clears throat> but we're building. And I'm not going to go into detail how many, but we're building enough, you know, to sustain our shop space and all that. But um, I don't want to build any more than I'm building right now a year, you know, as yeah. far as as far as the aluminum sabines, you know. 
So it's it's a good clientele. I mean, we're shipping some to Florida, you know, Louisiana, Mississippi. Got one in Georgia. Talked to a guy today, you know, South Carolina, stuff like that. So it's so you're spreading it's, it's yeah. The I mean, it's a niche. I don't I don't like selling that far away, you know, because you're just dealing with someone over the phone. Mm-hmm. It's nice to shake someone's hand, you know, during the build and all that. Because I that's what I enjoy more. It, I made more money in oil and gas. If I was doing this for money. I'd go start a construction company, Yeah, make way more money. You know, to me, it's a passion. My wife and I lived our life frugal, you know, and kind of can afford to do what we do now. And uh, I could work a 10-hour day, and it felt like it went, you know, it took it 30 on, minutes. Yeah. 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 You know, and that's what everybody says. If you do something, do something what you love, you never work a day in your life, you know, and I think that's that's true for what I'm doing now. Um good clientele you know i mean i deal with just people that want our boats so it's just it's good do you think it would have happened without that buddy in bay vista saying hey come by and, and uh, no no i think i might have met did y'all fly drone together and do get drone footage from uh fat boys jones that was like, a, a different friend oh that's a different yeah, guy okay yeah. i met that guy at during a crab track cleanup and he again he was putting his sabine in the water yep and i recognized it from before it's like, hey, what are you doing down here? That's I'm another like, neighbor. Yeah, yeah. I was like, well, I love, I love the, I love the design, love the skip. He's like, oh, we're shooting some drone footage today. Yeah, yeah. He, on you. he, um, he works for. It doesn't matter where he works, but anyway, we, we, he would always walk by the, um, the house is just, you know, the way by Vista is set up. You know, you have one, the street, just one in and one out. Mm-hmm. So he would walk by. He was exercising to, to do a big, you know, hike that he was working on, and I was always working on different boats. I always had some kind of boat project. And um, when I first started building the Sabines, he, he saw them. And I remember when he ordered his boat, he come to the shop. And actually, I don't like showing pictures of the insides because that's kind of a niche of how we put it together. Yeah. It's a lot, of, a lot of man hours and a lot of tricks. But uh, when he saw it, he's like, if I'd have known they were built like this, I'd have ordered one a long time ago. That was one, a good compliment that, uh, right, that right. Steve gave me, which he um, still good friends. Though as a skiff, he flew me during the border we had some skiffs go from Border to Bayou, from South Padre to Sabine. Like two years ago, maybe, or last yeah, year? two years ago. Okay. And um, he flies now for fun. So St- Steve flew us, and we dropped a Yeti bag out of his airplane <laughs> to the guys in <laughs> the water. Survive? The Yeti bag, the, the, the bag did. The zipper broke. Uh, but it didn't help that we had a bunch of drinks, um, food, turtle box, <laughs> speaker system. We had way too, I had too could much barely, yeah, yeah, too much stuff in the yeah. bag. It, it bounced four times. And didn't come apart like nothing just blew up, and mm-hmm. I thought it made it. When the guys got to it, the zipper come out. Yeah, so they wa- had Waterburger in it for them. Oh, like nice. it was, yeah, it was just a big. It was a Yeti bag <laughs> of gifts. Care, care package. Yeah, yeah, it was an exciting time. But yeah, we had some good clients. It's been fun. Um, the boats it really hasn't changed a whole lot. Every time we come out with a new design, um, <clears throat> excuse me, you started with what we call the versatile. Uh, all our boats are seventeen and a half foot long. There's like a certain magic number. I like length to width ratio mm-hmm. on how a boat pulls. Um, and that's me learning years and years of either building my own, messing up, or, you know, riding in another brand's boat years ago and it pulls like a donut or it's loud or whatever. And uh, so the Versatile is 17 and a half foot long. And when talking to Scott of kind of what he wanted from the first one I made, so the the production versatile. I guess I, I, we built the first one in John's shop. Second one for, for Scott, which is almost like a one-off. And then the production had a different deck. It actually had the rub rail and everything. But 
we needed something for a guide or that that's what i wanted to do for my first model because it's more versatile yeah. you know yeah. a, a guide can take its two clients a fly fishing guide or sight casting guide um, a family it's pretty much a family boat or me you and a third buddy can go fishing mm-hmm. and nothing has really changed in the boat none of the layouts nothing you know uh after a couple years of running that we made the micro which is 17 and a half foot has the same stations in it same pretty much deck lengths but we changed the width so uh, smaller bottom for a 25 or 30 horsepower uh, motor and then made it narrower and that's a fun boat uh, it's a good two-man boat me and you could go out on it you can pull it one hand it's i think that's the boat that you work or similar that you worked with the central houston chapter exactly on, right? yep last year uh, they ordered one i guess it was two years ago they ordered it but we built it for them for last year and um yeah they raffled that boat off the owner that actually won it in the raffle which i was kind of worried you don't ever want to raffle something and then that person just sells it yeah and yeah, it which know, happens a lot oh yeah it hurts yeah. the resale value and then yeah. I, that's why i told the guys when i first did the raffles like i don't know if i want to do that you know obviously i want to take your money you know i mean i want to get paid to build a boat right right but you got to be careful on how many you raffle and what so i'll probably only do like one a year if mm-hmm. i keep this up but yeah it, it turned out great the guy that won the raffle wanted the boat and still fishes it. He told me the, talked to me the other day. He's like, Amazing. yeah, loves it. Um, we just finished their second one, so it's February. They'll, they're going to raffle it. I don't. Let's just say April, May. It's going to be coming up pretty fast. Yeah, maybe yeah. even in March. Yeah, if you want to uh, buy a ticket for that one, you need to go to Central yeah. Houston CCA's um, See if website. This is still going here. Yeah. You could also uh, call. Uh, ask for Coleman Todd. Call the CCA office. Ask for Coleman Todd, and he'll get you in touch with the right person if you want to get in on that. But yeah, so that was uh, so yeah, we need to reset that. No, it's there's not enough uh, oh. reception. Okay, it's fine. But yeah, so yeah, they've been great. You know, I would say clients because you know we likely will a third one for them. You know, and it's good. Um, you know, it's obviously it's good to help CCA out, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a good fundraiser. It's, it's great. And then our clients. People love it. I mean, we sold the tickets out in like four days. You know, it's just crazy. <laughs> I got mine in, but yeah, yeah, they went quick. So, I mean, it's quick. it's a good – I never thought I would ever build a skiff or a product that would have, I guess I don't say that much impact, but that much following. You know what I mean? Um, so it's it's exciting to see that um, in the products, you know. I mean, we so we had the micro. We took the micro – you know, we t- we talked about the border to buy you, but that was a year after a man, a friend. We took the micro. We called it Capital to Coast. We left from Austin, Texas, on a Colorado River, mm-hmm. and I forget. I, I say oh, I, it's like nine forty six, nine forty seven bridge, just south of um, Lake Austin or Lady Bird, and uh, damn, and we put in there, and we we made it to Garwood, which we had a mishap at Garwood. We anyway, it's a long story, but we sank it at Garwood. Like, and sank, like sank. sank the boat yeah and uh yeah the jet hit we i rigged this boat up it was our actually the first micro we built and i rigged it up to able to run two motors so i could have a 35 jet mm-hmm. a tatsu 35 jet and it was on a jack plate and the the power was in this uh warren winch quick connect yeah. which could handle the amperage <clears throat> and then i could put a 30 horse prop on it and I could switch these out. I, I bought the winch system that you put in the, the hitch of your truck to skin deer and hogs yeah, yeah. that rotated. So I kept a motor in the back of my truck 
and I could back up to the skiff in a parking lot and change these motors out in about 15 minutes. So we started in Austin with a jet motor, and we're going to run the jet motor all the way to Wharton and somewhere around Smithville. It threw some codes, and I'm, on, you know, I'm drifting down the river talking to Tahatsu, and um, it's just a weird ECU just had a glitch in it, come to find out. But So uh, Smithville, my dad drove to us, and we put the prop motor on, and which gave us trouble from Smithville to LaGrange and Columbus. We bent that prop shaft 10 times. We actually oh, bent man. it straight, <laughs> which was weird. When we got to Columbus, it was actually straighter than it was in LaGrange. And uh, anyway, it's, so when we got to Garwood, some of the dam, if we had the jet, we could have motored down it. Would have been sketchy, but we could have. And with the prop, I didn't want it to hang up on the rocks on the back, on the yeah. back end and get sideways. Yeah. So we ended up, our mistake is we didn't take all of our equipment out of the boat because we're carrying a couple hundred pounds of camping gear and food and whatever. Anyway, it got on the back side of the dam, got hung up on a rock, pushed it off. got It basically got sideways and just took on water sideways. I thought the trip was over with. I thought it was going to break in a thousand pieces if we tried to get it out. LCRA guys were following the trip. On my phone, you know how you can have track me or whatever? Yeah, yeah. So my wife, my father, and the head of LCRA was tracking me the whole time. And he knew we were, well, my father was trying to tell me to pull out at the Garwood boat ramp mm-hmm. and just go to Ward. I was like, no, we got it, Dad. Well, um, the LCRA guy was in a meeting in Austin. And he's like, I saw when you were at the dam for over an hour, I knew something he was did. up. So when I called him, he's like, what's what's happened? So I told him. He's like, man, bring a boat from downstream or, or something. I think we can pull this out or whatever. He's like, no. Send him some pictures. He's like, if we can get a chain hoist upon a tree, because it sank perfect to go like straight up. up. Yeah, to the bank. Yeah. He said, if we can get a come along up in this tree and however many foot of rope. And then, boy, you know, MacGyver of me was just like, that's all I need. <laughs> so... You know, call call a, through people, can't really say, but got a hold of the landowner's uh, ranch manager. And um, got him, he came down, told him what I was doing, or I told him over the phone what was going on, and he laughed, like, what are, what are you doing down here, boy, you know? And he shows up on an ATV with his daughter. I mean, he's wearing spurs, like they'd just been working cattle. Yeah. He looks at it, and he's like, well, you, you got yourself in a pickle. I'm like, yeah. And he's giving me a hard time, and I didn't know this, but one of his helpers bringing a tractor with a chain. Because oh, I told him over the phone. Help, yeah. I said, if you get a tractor with a front-end loader, 60-foot of chain or whatever, I can get this boat out. It might be in a bunch of pieces. And I already had my, you know, my dad was coming with the trailer empty. Mm-hmm. And um, so the guy shows up with the tractor. We hook up to it. And he told me, he says, you hook up, my, you tell my guy what to do, we're here to help you, but I'm not hooking anything up or whatever. Hooked it up, and when they, when his helper lifted the boat out of the water, I thought, it, I mean, I didn't know what to expect. It was, I mean, it's a lot of weight. Yeah. Water is heavy, in a, in a five-knot current maybe, ten-knot coming off the dam. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of force. And the boat picked up. It didn't come apart. He drove up, and when he got it on the bank, pulled the plug out, and um, the motor never went underwater. And I did have to take the battery switch off that was underwater. I had yeah. to cut it off because it was making the bilge pump. Just It was just putting water in the air. Yeah. Anyway. But, yeah, we drained the water and the motor cranked. And I told him, I said, we're going to drop back in. And he's like, no. You, you <laughs> pull this thing out, run, put it on the trailer. I got to go somewhere. You know, I got to be there, you know, somewhere for dinner. So we found boards, you know, just a bunch of drift boards and got it over the rocks the and pulled it up the bank. 
my dad just showed up right then and uh, put it on the trailer and uh, took it home that night because we weren't far from my parents' house at that time. Mm-hmm. They live you know, between Weimar and Hallettsville. I put uh, put the plug in it. I put about six inches of water until I could hear the springs kind of creaking on the, on the torsion axle. And um, no leaks. Pull the plug, let the water drain out, and we put in in um, Bay City the next morning. Finished it. No, no, <coughs> no stress fractures. No, no stress no. fractures. A few dings from the from the um, the rocks. Probably a lot more from pulling it. You know, the yeah. rocks going up the bank. But um, yeah, just a few dings on the bottom and the side. Nothing major. I mean, I sold the boat. Like I was gonna say, later. where's that bad boy yeah. now? Yeah, uh, guy in Galveston okay. bought it from him. And um, but yeah, we we actually. Put in a Bay, t- uh, Bay City, went down to Matagorda. Of course, it's blowing south, you know, out of 20. The next morning, it's blowing north, you know. So, I mean, the fishing was just horrible. Yeah. And we were supposed to pull out there in Matagorda. And since we live on the water in Bay Vista, I told my wife, I said, we're just going to drive home. So, we drove from Matagorda all the way to Galveston and pulled into my dock, and then my wife looked to the south of the water. <laughs> so, other, nice. than, other than sinking it in Garwood, so from, we skipped Garwood. You know, in Wharton and all that, yeah. which we knew we were going to probably either have to pull out at Garwood. Well, we were going to have to pull out at Wharton. It gets awful shallow around Wharton. Yeah, well, there's some big dams and bad stuff you can't pass. Yeah, between Wharton and Bay City, yeah, it's pretty good. It's, you yeah. have to have a kayak and pull around those yeah. dams. So we were going to pull out at Wharton anyway. So we initially had a trip. I think we only missed 40 or 50 miles of the planned river. But And then the next year, I didn't get to go on it because of work, but uh, – Two clients went from Border to Bayou. From they put in a South Padre last year, right? Yeah, not this last summer, but the summer 19. before. Yeah, 19. and they had a good trip, and I got to run the last day with them. They stayed in at the headquarters in Bayou Vista the last day uh, or the night before, and then we took three skiffs from Galveston and ran them to Sabine and pulled out an orange. So they had a blast. They how long does that take? They did it in seven days, okay. but you can't. I mean, he, even the Austin trip, you can only fish two to three hours a day. And then you got to run the rest of the time. Yeah. yeah. So that's the bad part about doing it in a week. And obviously you'd like to do it in a month, but who can support right. a live, li- livelihood and be gone from work a month and yeah. your family. So, yeah. yeah. So that was after, after the micro. So yeah. So you're moving on. After doing the river trip, I needed a river skiff. What I learned is it would be better to have more freeboard to have oars. Mm-hmm. Which we did have oars on the micro, but you had to build oar risers and all this stuff. So we come up with a river skiff, which is the versatile bottom. We made it standard three sixteenths. So if you sing it at Garwood Dam and you won't ding the bottom coming up. Yeah. No, but um, the standard three sixteenth bottom because they're majority jet boats and it's a stronger bottom, thicker um, than our standard eighth inch. But um, so that one has no rolled gunnels. So we put oar locks, you know, right on the edge of the boat and you have good clearance for oars. It's a little heavier boat. It's a little under, over 700 pounds, but it rose good for a 17-and-a-half-foot boat mm-hmm. that weighs 700 pounds. Um, you're not going to go sit there and row it upstream, you know, in a three or four-knot current or whatever, but it's a good good little drift boat for the Colorado River, Brazos. Some guys own them and have fished in that area. But then you can pull it. You can take it to the coast, either have a polling platform on it all the time. We do a removable polling platform. And everyone, every customer that has a, a river skiff that, you know, they live in the hill country usually go to the coast a few times a year mm-hmm. and fish for redfish and stuff like that. Or you can pull for carp and things. So yeah. that, that's how that, the river skiff evolved from taking the micro from Austin to the coast and uh, kind of learning, you know, what you want. And rod holders 
on our polling skids, like the, the standard versatile and micro, and now our new guide that's coming out, all the all the rod holders are four to aft. Because you fish on the front of the boat. Yeah. So when you come off the front platform, you can put your rod straight in the rod holder. And now a lot of skiff manufacturers out there have that. done this. <laughs> like standard. Because yeah. before, everybody put rods forward. Right. Majority of times. And there's a few companies that had options both ways. But anyway. So on the river skiff, we have rod tubes going both ways. Because sometimes in the river, uh, river skiff, you might be fishing on the uh, stern of the boat, especially if you're um, in a high current situation. Because you want to row bow up, so if you get in a tough situation, yeah, you can either you can either drop anchor, or you can get on the motor to get out. Mm -hmm. So we did that on the river skiff. You know, rod holders running both ways, and then um, more freeboard, stronger bottom or thicker bottom. And that's you know we hadn't sold a lot of them because I mean that's like a super niche boat, super specialty. But um, you know we've we've sold a handful of those, and then now we're coming out with a guide, which is a versatile bottom, with. Um, Lower, you know, less freeboard like the micro, a little bit narrower deck. We shaved off some weight. Standard three sixteenth bottom on it because our guides usually they get I our boats. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They, they buy a Sabine for a reason. And I think it's going to be a not a fairly popular model, but we're already building a few more, few of them. I'll just say that. So looking forward to get that. We're gonna we're gonna launch that one publicly in April. The Houston Fishing Show, as long as it doesn't get canceled because mm -hmm. of COVID. But um, that's standard three person. Standard three-person boat. Yeah, it comes with a uh, Yeti 65 that we built, this removable backrest, tubing backrest you can take on and off. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, we're going to make the guides going to be tiller only. No console, just straight, simple. Most company, other skiff companies call that maybe their lodge edition. I didn't want to call it a lodge edition. I just call it the guide. Yeah. So standard tiller boat. You can get it in a jet or prop, tunnel or non-tunnel. And then, but it will come standard with the Yeti 65 or another brand. But I'd, if they're buying the cooler for me, it'll be a Yeti. And then uh, the backrest that goes into the Yeti. And what's so. the weight on that one? That one's going to be mid 600. It's like 650. Okay. So from the Versatile, we shaved about 50 pounds, mm -hmm. but it has a stronger bottom. So that's kind of what we got, did with the guide. I was hoping to shave around 100 pounds, 75 to 100. But after building it and then doing the uh, 316 bottom, is right at 50 pounds. Yeah, I imagine so, you get to a point where there's just nowhere to Well, you can't – yeah, I mean, yes, I could build a lighter boat, but I my clients would beat it up and it'd fall apart. Yeah. You know, so there has to be – there's a certain weight of any material out there. Um, now, one of my engineering – I would say – I'd just call him a friend, but he's, uh, he's one of my high school friends' fathers – I interviewed him in college, uh, my intro to engineering class. You had to go, go in, you know, part of your one test was to interview an engineer, you know, out there and, you know, what they do with this and then, you know, some word of advice from them. And one thing he always, he told me and it always sticks with me is, you know, in engineering, everything you're dealing with is numbers. You will never have the most economic electric motor out there because all you have to do is subtract one and someone build something else more economic, you know. And someone can build a lighter boat or they can do that, you know, faster or poles better and all that. But, yeah, as far as me, there's a, there's a certain weight I like to stick with, mainly so the things stay together because yeah. my guys use them hard. I mean, most of being owners buy it because it's aluminum, it's rugged. They can take it over rocks and oysters and stuff like that, you know. And I mean, we're not condoning running over this stuff and tearing up bottoms. But when you're polling in six inches of water and you have to pull over a hump, it feels a little bit more comforting 
to a customer to have aluminum boat in mm-hmm. that situation than you know high end composite boat. What what are what are the things what are the things you want people to to when they think of Sabine skiffs? What are the words you want them to come to mind? Like you know, durability, reliability. Durability, reliability, great words. Uh, I'm not a wordsmith, but um, you know it's funny or not funny, but customer service. Um, I sell a lot of stuff because or a lot of uh, uh, boats, and a lot of people will tell me, well, I talked to so and so, I looked it up online, I can't find anything bad. Now there, it's going to happen, right? I'm just yeah. yeah. If no, yeah. I mean, it's just it's any product, no matter what you do. Yeah. But yeah, customer service. You're going to deal. Um, I, I mean, hopefully one day I'm so big that I don't have to work all the time. But for the near future, I'm going to quote your boat. I'm going to work with you through the build, and I'll be there the day you pick it up. You demo each one if you can. I try to. Um, it's th- what I'm getting now, and and. You know, it's just part of growing a company as I'm getting guides out. So I try to push demos to them because it gives them business um, first off. And I don't, you know, if I have a customer that's in Austin, I don't really want to ask them, hey, can you go take XYZ person on a demo? That's just not right, you know. So I demo probably 90% of the boats that I've sold, I've done a demo on. Uh, So I do that. And, you know, there's only so many hours in a week and a weekend and all this. And there's only one Brian. So. Well, exactly. So that's, and I, and I said that loosely that, you know, one day hopefully I can get to where I'm not in that fashion, but in the near future, I won't be like that, yeah. you know. So, yeah, you're going to deal with uh, the guy who fished off these boats for years and knows why this is designed this way, why the rod holder's here and this height and whatever. So... And that is a luxury to some people to to get to talk to the owner operator and oh, not yeah. just the salesman, you know, who's there to hit a budget every month or every quarter and you know make sure his quote is you know completed. There's a lot of value into knowing, like what you just said, why the design is this way, why the boat runs this way. And well, so that, many people go out there and buy boats and have zero idea. Yeah, and that's why I, I don't want to build more than what we're doing now, so to speak. Now, the, you know, we'll talk about the composite. I mean, you talked about it before. But, um, yeah, I, I, there's a certain number that I want to hit a year max, and I don't want to go over that. You know, it's just, um, like you said, there's only one Brian. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, let's you know. touch on it. So, after behind the guide, you've got the – Yeah, so the guide's going to – we're going to – yeah, we're going to launch it this April, you know, 2021. Um, I've always been a composite guy. I studied it pretty hard in college, my senior project, and then when I graduated – um, and I don't know what it is. I, don't know, I know what it is about me. It just, I fell in love with boat building. Actually, recently I watched the Queen's Gambit and, um, you know how she would, she'd look up at the ceiling, you know, and that's how she played game. You know what I I'm talking about? It. You haven't seen, seen it. it. Okay. No, what's well, no. a, it's, you know, look at it. It's a, a young lady who she went to an orphanage because of some things happened to her family and she found this game of, uh, chess and she's basically, um, her mom was a math prodigy professor and all this. So she took on the game of chess because of the way her life went. And that's what she did every day. That's what she thought of when she went to sleep. Whatever, you know. Anyway, I'm talking slow here because this is a lot of time, you know, my life went into these boats. But, um, yeah, there would be, I mean, every evening when I go to bed, it's like, and not be when I'm doing, I was like 15 years ago. Yeah, I was designing a boat designing these boats what can make them better you know composite designs and all this stuff and 
you know, to get to where I am today, um, and I, we hit on it earlier, you know, it's not about the money, it's not about this, it's just something I've always wanted to do, it's a passion, you know, as far as polling skips and boat building, but, um, so yeah, I mean, the, the, the composite boat that we're working on now, you know, cross my fingers, it, it, you know, everything happens the way it should, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a long time coming, I mean, the, the aluminum Sabine, um, and it might be aluminum, forever <laughs> but um that was kind of a an afterthought of all my composite boats mm-hmm. and really that was the aluminum came in to i'm just going to see if i can do it i want to see if i can build a no hull slap aluminum boat well have you ever taken a personality test like any of those yeah, every person yes. yeah i've done some here actually yeah i've recently have with uh some other stuff that we do my, my wife and i business stuff and uh i'm the entrepreneur i'm the guy that i have to i study it i will think about it hard that's one part of my personality but i'll take a risk i will just do something and figure it out if i need to sell it later or whatever and that's kind of how the aluminum boat was i didn't know if i could sell it i figured it would work you know from my background of building all these other boats uh about the materials and then when i had it i just i figured well like i need to make a business out of this and that's kind of how it went so yeah, the composite is just a um, it's a long time coming it's gonna be lighter it's gonna be f- fragile <laughs> because it's it's light you know you can't go run this thing over rocks down the colorado river you're not gonna be able to sink it in garwood and pull it out with the tractor mm-hmm. you know what i mean but i have a um uh, i won't say i have a lot of clientele but i have clientele out there who want a yacht finished boat they've told me i just i brian i love i love what you're doing i love you you know you, you're genuine you're here in Texas or you're close to Louisiana or whatever, but I just, I can't own an aluminum boat. And, um, and it's like I said, it's been my passion since the early two thousands to, to do the composite. So well, watching you talk about it, I mean, it doesn't always come over on audio, but reading you and watching you describe it. I mean, it certainly seems like this is, you know, your life's work coming full, full circle. Yeah. Like you're, you've got the goal in mind and you've been, directly or indirectly working your way to that point and you're getting sounds like fairly close so yeah congratulations yeah. to you and Kayler for you know seeing the finish line exactly and we, we've been a super good team she, she we work good together she is not an entrepreneur <laughs> like <laughs> almost polar opposite well, of maybe uh, that's the balance well no it is we've time. we've been a lot of a lot of compliments is why we work so good together and uh, we both listen to each other and she runs a, a c-deck business that does custom c-deck so many dinners if not every dinner is a small business meeting this is what we did this week brian what do you think about this this is that or you know and i'll bounce stuff off the skiffs and yeah i mean i've been down this road before with composites uh years ago that failed so that's why i'm a little hesitant you know but i'll put it out there i mean that's what we're working on we're 3d drawings are 99 percent done we'll be milling you know hopefully by next week and um i want to have a couple prototypes on the water this year mm-hmm. Um, and then finalize things, and then next this time next year I'll be, excuse me, in a perfect world launching the product, so yeah. to speak, you know. And I don't mind. Sometimes companies kind of shy back on waiting to launch till prototyping and all is done. Um, I think there's a good part of a good part of marketing strategy to kind of launch before that. To you know, if you have the education and all the back it up or, or whatever right. or, or experience so to speak but yeah it's uh it's gonna be a fun 2021 
I didn't. I need COVID to disappear, and don't we all? You know, and it's kind of. I mean, it's been good. It's been bad as far as business, uh, because you know, the good part about COVID. Let's 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 talk about something positive, and not this the deaths and all that stuff. But it's pushed people to spend more family time. It's pushed people to stay home, to stay to spend their money, you know, with their family and with their home state and their home city. You know, they're not going traveling the world, yeah. which unfortunately to people in parts of the world that need tourism, right? Right. So right. the good part is it's forced people to do that, and um, so they've realized, and, and they're not spending a lot of frugal or unfrugal money or whatever the word is on just other stuff. So, yeah, a lot of people are buying boats and they're going camping. I mean, my wife and I are trying to buy a camper and it's like a six-month lead time, you know. It's, it's crazy. It's, and people it's are, you know, tents and just hiking gear and bikes. bicycles. Yeah. I couldn't find a bicycle, yeah, the, yeah, a few weeks ago to buy one. So that's a good part of COVID. You know, the bad part is obviously the bad, you know, it's pretty easy to know the bad part. But well, you'd be, you, you might know this, but a lot of listeners probably don't. I mean, obviously fishing has – uh, increased in popularity, but license sales, general fishing license sales are up as a result of that, and they're up like 28%. Mm-hmm. I mean, the highest that they've ever been is yeah. you know, this past year because of COVID, and, and it, they expect it to maintain, you know, here in, in 2021. So, which mm-hmm. which is good. It's all good, but it does put a little more pressure on the resources. Well, yeah, I mean, you get pressure on the resources. You have a national, or I don't, would you call the freeze a national disaster? What is it's, it? It's uh, what do you uh, call regional. it? Regional, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I guess I it think there's only right now, to, as of yesterday, there were like only four or five continental states without snow, which yeah. I don't think has ever happened. Well, so. But I mean, you have a, a something like that happen, you know, potentially set back, you know, the, the fisheries as far as revenue wise, because now they're going to be spending you know time with fixing homes or whatever, getting right, back to work. Right. But on a grand scheme of things, too the potential fish kills that are out there. I mean, there's some that have been recorded and documented so far. And I think for the next, what do you think? Three to four days. Uh, what I've, yeah. What I've been more? telling people is by, so today is today's Thursday. I've been saying Wednesday to Friday would be pretty telling as to what's mm-hmm. going on. We're about to get this next cold snap tonight. And then, so yeah, through this weekend, which would be the 21st. We, we ought to know parks and wildlife ought to be able to know. Yeah. And I was going to look up, Real quick, the number for people to call uh, to report those fish kills because that's that's uh, right as of now, that's probably the best thing that anybody can do because the better estimates that Parks and Wildlife has, you know, mortality estimates that they have, the better that they can determine uh, the extent and the severity right. of the yeah. kill. So that number is five one two three eight nine four eight four eight five one two three eight nine four eight four eight. That's where you go yeah. to report any any fish kill. Sorry to the people online, because of everything going on, self-service is not as good in the area, nor do we have Wi-Fi, so I'm sorry we lost you all a while back. Yeah, good to have you guys back yeah. that are on Brian's social. So, yeah, the, the, the freeze is, is going to be interesting to see how, well, first of all, we, we have the ability to, to respond. We're sitting in one of those abilities, if you will. We're, we're here at the hatchery at Sea Center, Texas, so there's... There's actually two hatcheries on the coast, one in Corpus Christi and one here in Lake Jackson. There's a third facility that's part of the hatchery system where they have additional grow-out ponds, and that's in Palacios. So each year, the hatcheries historically have produced anywhere from 8 to 10 million spotted sea trout fingerlings, and then another 12 to 15 million red drum fingerlings. But they have the ability to either produce more red drum or more trout or what Mm -hmm. have you. So... They, we have we have the um, the means to respond to this freeze 
instantly by putting more fingerlings in, mm. into the water. Now the fishery will take, it will take a, a good year before those fish enter into the slot where they're big enough to retain. But it will certainly give a jump start to recovering, recovering the fishery. And so we just visited and saw some of the broodstock here at this facility, and those guys are going to be ready to spawn this spring. Um, but so that's one step, one way that we can respond. There's also ways that we all can respond individually as anglers and, and how we prosecute the, the fishery, regardless of what Parks and Wildlife does. We have, I think, we have personal accountability to try to do the best that we can to help the fishery recover. So keep what you can eat that day. Um, you know, practice catch and release. Practice catch and release of all of your high-quality trout brood stock. You know, those fish 20 inches and plus. Um, if, if you don't need them, you know, mm -hmm. go ahead and let For them sure. go. Because there's, despite what people may tell you, the survivability of fish that are caught is, is quite high. If, if, you're, if they're not handled, I mean, if you're not sticking your hands up in their gills, if you haven't torn a gill, and if you're not holding them vertically for five minutes out of the water on your bogus, generally those fish have a really high chance of survival. Um, if you are going to catch and photo your large trout, it's always best if you support them from underneath and hold them out where they're horizontal rather than vertical. Uh, it's better for the fish. And as much as you can, if you don't have to take them out of the water to do your pictures, that's even, oh, yeah, you know, for sure. keep the same them way wet. like we do with yeah. tarpon. You know, keep them in the water for your picture if you can, and then and then let them go. But uh, hanging them up vertically is, is, a, is a, you know, not the greatest way to take care of the fish. And, of course, keeping your hands out of the gills is right. important. So I don't know if you have anything you wanted to add on. No, not as, as far as that. I mean, it's I – th I really – I, I'll, I'll hit on this. I, I really think, you know, just seeing on social media, uh, everybody's response to the freeze on, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I think we're going to get a good push in the saltwater industry or species of fish of more catch and release. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we're decades behind bass fishermen or freshwater oh, fishermen. Sure. Um, I really think if, if you want to look at the bright side of this, I think we're going to start getting more guides and just more recreational fishermen catch and release. Um, I mean, everybody loves the, well, I don't say everybody loves to eat fish, but you know, a lot of people that saltwater fish do it because they like to eat fish, you know? Yeah. And I think you're going to get more, um, just like you said, keep what they need for that day or, or week or whatever, and not just let's go on a meat haul, so to speak. Yeah. But we'll see, you know, I'm anxious to see in certain parts of the state, you know, what's going to come and start floating or, you know, be shown visible, you know, right. the next day or two. And then, um. Yeah, see what comes this summer, you know. And we were we were talking about it earlier off, you know, before the podcast. That we, at least you and I, haven't seen a whole lot of reports, or if any, coming out of Galveston and Sabine, but certainly like East Matagorda and then further south, uh, some dead fish are for sure are, are popping up. And um, just to let everybody know that the hatchery systems have brood stock from almost every single bay system along the Texas coast. So. All those fish you see coming up in Aransas area, Copano Bay area, well, we have brood stock from those bay systems, so we can put fingerlings back out. So, yeah. you know, the, the Parks and Wildlife is, is ready and poised to respond uh, through their hatchery system, and, of course, they have other means and methods if they need to. Uh, but, you know, as anglers, we can we can start responding right now mm -hmm. in, in our behaviors. For sure. So. Yep, especially in the ne even the next day or two. You know, watch where you go fishing and, you know, how you do it. I mean, right. just don't be greedy. You yeah. Know? But um, backing up to the the sea center, this is my first time, mm -hmm. uh, and I really, really appreciate you giving me the, the hands-on tour as far as going over each room. Um, but I was shocked, me personally, at 
how big a red y'all had in each tank and then how big a trout because I could sit there and look at the, both windows, at least the trout window, for minutes to hours it's of like, how many big trout are swimming by me. It's mesmerizing you know? yeah. watching them come by the viewing oh, window. Oh, yeah. there's an eight-pounder. Yeah. Oh, there's a, I bet that one's close to ten. And then, you know, a bunch of five-pounders that yeah. look like six-pounders. Yeah, no, that, so it is impressive seeing those those broodstock. The redfish yeah. are, you know, those are bull reds. Yeah. Those are the ones you're catching out in the near-shore waters of the Gulf. So they're 36 inches plus. Only the males in there? There's th three females and two males. How big do you think the male is in there? They're all 36 all inch plus. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. And so the, it's it's amazing uh, with fish of that size, um, how you know how many eggs that you can get. Yeah. Just five or three females in a tank. Same for trout too. You you would be so um, it's just the the way that the hatcheries operate is they put the fish on a, a on a photo temperature cycle. It's, it basically mimics the seasons of the year. Well, they compress those seasons into about 180 days. And so they'll go through redfish. They'll go through a winter and a spring and a summer in about 180 days. So that's light and temperature regime. And then they'll get them to autumn or to fall where they naturally spawn when they're spawning in the wild. So they'll hold them at that 10 and a half, 11 hours of daylight. And then they'll just fluctuate the temperatures drop it for a cold front, warm it back up, drop it, warm it back up. Do that for three months at a time so those redfish will keep spawning and spawning and spawning, thinking that it's fall and then mm. it's their time for them to spawn. Eventually, your spawn will kind of play out. Your egg quality goes down. So that group of fish goes off cycle and the next one's coming on. So they're able to spawn these fish over, um, you know, year-round if they wanted to. But um, they're constantly producing eggs and producing lots and lots of eggs. So the hatcheries are not in any way, redfish or trout, they're not limited in any way in egg production or larvae fry production. They can produce millions and millions mm -hmm. and millions and millions of those. It's the only limitation is the grow out period in the ponds and they'll grow yeah. them out to about inch and a half, two inches. So you can only grow those fish so long and you only have so many warm months in the year to, to, to do that in. You can't grow them out this time of the year because yeah. it's just too cold. They won't develop. So um, anyways, that's the only, that's the only limitation they have is the, um, warm growing season for the outdoor culture yeah i thought it was another interesting take from walking around is um it is thursday this week's flown by I was like yeah, yeah, yesterday I, I thought thir uh, yesterday thursday was thursday so it's, it's a week work day and the employees are here and you walk in and you you know the guy the the men and women who are running the the hatchery you know in the building and you're like all right you know the public's relying on y'all and the the smile and excitement from their faces is just it was cool. It yeah. was cool to me to see. I'm and, glad you noticed that. And, yeah. the, you know, it's like they, they know how many people are, are looking forward to, you know, if we have to replenish the base. Yeah. That you have people like this. That's are, a good thing to point out because this is their life's work. And so much of, of what, and now I'm going to get a little mm -hmm. emotional, but so much of what these guys do is um, it, it either goes unnoticed or unrecognized. But these guys bust their ass all the time to to um, keep this place in tip-top shape so that's a view you know the public can come and view the aquariums and have an enjoyable experience for their kids or they can go to one of the youth fishing ponds and enjoy that and then behind the scenes the amount of work they do to put whether it's trout or redfish or flounder to put those fingerlings in the water it's it's tremendous and if anyone just wants to get just a taste of, of what what it takes come out here one time after they harvest a pond then they have to clean that pond, mm -hmm. shovel, brooms, buckets, 
and if you've ever worked on a farm you might have an idea of what the bottom of that pond smells and looks like feels like like. but um they have to immediately let that thing um they have to clean it up get all of that fish waste and and feces and decomposed um organic cottonseed meal organic fertilizer algae what have you all of that accumulates and they have to uh, manually remove that from the pond and start it back up you know and that's just that's just one of the back-breaking things that they have to do but my point is it's their life's work and they bust their tails for the state of texas and for for all of us so that we have a we have fish to go catch we have something we can enjoy from a recreational standpoint and it goes on a lot of times it goes unnoticed so anyways you saw their smiles oh yeah oh yeah and and they're geared up. They all perked. Oh yeah, that was yeah. good. That was good to see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to run into this because we we talked earlier of the fish, whether it's here, but trout, tarpon, triple tail, game fish. What's your favorite, and how do you fish for them? I wanted to ask you that. Um, I'm pretty basic. My favorite is sight casting reds, yeah. but I don't. I'm not in the. I mean, I want to be a fly fisherman, but mm-hmm. I, I don't claim to be a fly fisherman. But so much like bow hunting. I like the intimate part of the experience. Close to them, I like see them. Close to them, I like to seeing and hearing. Yeah, I like to be as much in the element as I can. Um, so that's my by far, in a way, that's that's my yeah. that's my favorite. Um, but um, you know, we weight fish artificial all the time. But if 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 I know that there's a spot that I can get to and wade into and sight cast, then that's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. I assume you're similar. Very similar. I mean. It changes, you know, with the, the time of year and stuff. But, yeah, sight casting. Right right now, if you gave me the one, it's sight casting big trout on the fly is probably just because it's the hardest. Maybe the right now it could be the hardest in Texas to do, yeah. you know, other than maybe going after some tarpon and snook because there's just not that many, you know, in sight casting um, so areas. So have, have you caught any trout? Trophy quality. Yeah, the, probably the, well, I would say it's a top five trout. Was he was a little over twenty nine? I didn't weigh him. Maybe I don't think we got a bug or anything. But no, he was uh, twenty nine inches, sight casted it wow. in the middle coast. And that day, after seeing the twenty nine, I thought when I casted at him, I thought he was twenty five, twenty six. Mm-hmm. So I know I was casting at some so over thirty. So you saw some more. Oh yeah, that day, I casted at probably thirty fish over twenty five inches. What time of the year was that? I can't say. <laughs> that was uh, June, July area okay yeah yeah i want to do more now but the winds switch so much that it in some of the good bays or that hold big trout yeah that are within a driving distance you know right. i mean yeah i would love to go fish a week in baffin or lower laguna madre but with my work i can't do that yeah. but it's just it's hard to get the clear water in my in my uh, opinion in where some of the big trout hold this time of year closer to where i live but yeah, I mean, you can you can go out there now in certain base systems and maybe see one or two, but that was a twenty to thirty day. So I've done that, yeah. So that, yeah, that was cool. Turned into my favorite. It was it was. I pushed one. I bet he was thirty four inches. I thought it was a black drum. It was his tail was that big, wow. and when I got close, I was like, that looks like a shark. This is like and a gray it mass. Was, yeah, it was it was big. Wow. It was cool. You got it. You got it on a fly. You got a jack this last. Yeah. Is that your first to do on a No. Plane? Since we moved to Galveston, my wife and I, we've pretty much will chase jacks from March, April when the shrimp come into bay, you know, uh, till summertime. But, uh, yeah, this year it was uh, – I didn't even know it, but 
lengthwise, he was the same length as a state record on fly. Really? I was like, well, I guess oh, I man. need to start <laughs> seeing how to weigh these things. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it was 42 inches, right at 42 a over. That picture. That was, and, um, I don't know how you documented all that and caught him. That was, yeah, <laughs> it was – if anyone's – I know you're listening because of the podcast. I don't know if the Sabine guys are on. But, yeah, I was on a Versatile when I filmed that one, and I stuck it because it had a seat. The, the Versatile had a cushion seat. And the seat has a circle cutout for the latch, uh-huh. which is like a perfect cup holder. So an iPhone would fit right in it. Okay. And it would hold it tight. Yeah. So I went live, stuck it in the seat cushion, and walked him on the front deck. And like fought it for like 45 minutes, and what something was going on there, and because so many people were at home, I don't know what was going on, and that so many people were like, we were actually locked down. It could have been for COVID or something, yeah. and everybody's like, that was that was the best thing I've seen oh. in five days because nothing. It was like a breath yeah. of fresh air. Yeah, it was, it was nice. like Brian went fishing, and thank you, Brian. You know, <laughs> but that that was a that was a good size fish. But yeah, though. So, my pattern right now in Galveston system. And I try to go to Louisiana in the wintertime to catch bull reds just because they get up in the shallowers a yeah. lot more than in Texas. But, you know, March, April, we try to get out to the jetties area or that part of the bay system um, when you can see the shrimp boats and the jacks come in. And, and I've caught some six- to seven-pound trout out there. Second largest trout on fly was out there in, uh, in April time. A lot of um, – Are you blind casting that? Yeah, that is blind casting. Yeah. That's – um, I'm going blank on it, but there's a sand deal. Yeah. Some of the sand deals seem to hatch around then, I think. Um, I saw one time we were fishing because the fly did look like a sand deal. And after work, uh, me and one of my friends, we caught a, I want to say it was a two sevens, but I know it was a seven, six, five, four. I think it was a seven and maybe two sixes, pounders, a five and a four on fly, blind casting, in like day. a 30 to 45 minute window. Wow. Of one area of the rocks, it was weird. We we're just right there where they were hanging. Yeah. Um, so every year we try to, I try to get back there, but that's such a weather dependent and time dependent because I work. You know, on weekends, you know, there's so many people there's there. So many, uh, a lot of people yeah. are in the good spots, but um, so I do that when the when the uh, when the shrimp boats come into the bay, you know, usually your jacks follow and stuff like that. And and then that time of the year, depending on where you can drive and where you live, you know, the shrimp are already in the marsh you know, hatching and stuff like that. So, and if you can get some marshes that have grass and clear water, well, then you can start sight casting reds. Yeah. And then the circle finishes. And then I've gotten in the summertime where I'll, I kind of leave the school reds alone. And that's, I'll go catch one or two or maybe with a, a new client or a friend that doesn't sight cast. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of exciting for me to see someone new do that. But I'll go and uh, look for triple tail, look for jacks. And then I'll start looking for big trout also, you know, in the summertime. And and that's kind of my fun. And you're so. you, you roam you might roam most, mostly Galveston. Or do you hit, come over so to Matagorda a little bit? I do fish Matagorda a couple times a year, um, just because we live on West Galveston Bay, and I can keep a boat behind my house. Yeah, that spoils me. It's good and it's bad. The good part is I go home and I have a boat behind my house. The bad part is is the boat is behind my house so i can't drive anywhere without <laughs> yeah, going and putting it, it on the lock yeah. yeah so that's why you need two to three boats so, <laughs> so yeah so this past year uh anyway but yeah i try to keep a boat on the trailer more and i like going to sabine you know i lived there for 15 years i went to college over there and my wife's from that area and her family um I, their marshes are really fun for me yeah. a lot of grass marshes a lot of marshes that trolling motor boats and stuff can't fish so you have to pull um, whether it's because of cypress stumps or just widgeon grass or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you can get away from people still. That's like the 
well, I, mean, I just gave it away, but that, <laughs> that's some part of the coast that you still can go fishing and not see anybody. Yeah. Now it's getting more and more. I mean, when I lived over there, there was less than five skiffs around. Now there's like 30, you know, in the area, or maybe more by now. But, um, you know, the polling skiff um, scene has, has grown in this area. And But, yeah, from Sabine to, I would say, Freeport is where I fish a lot. But probably more just Galveston because I have a boat on yeah, the water yeah. and a lift. Yeah. West Galveston. East Galveston, Trinity is super good. The past few years, it's just been so flooded. You know, the river just can't seem to get right. But, I've only, I mean, I've done West Galveston a few times this last uh, year and had good yeah. experience just about every time I went. You know, it's it's a lot clearer than people think. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, I've posted pictures on social media and stuff and for Sabine, and they're like, man, where you at? Lower Lagoon Mondra? You in Florida? <laughs> like, that's Galveston. <laughs> what? You know. Now, it's, it's, there's good and bad clear water, you know. Yeah. Sometimes it's just not a lot of fish around, or, or they're super spooky. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's – West Galveston Bay is, is – it's a fun place to live. Um, East Galveston Bay holds some big trout and good jacks too, and the marshes have good reds in them. You know, Open Bay School reds is is huge, and East and Trinity. And then, um, but yeah, it was, Sabine has my heart just because I lived there so long. Yeah, that's kind of where I started, so to speak, of of fly fishing or fly fishing hard, and then saltwater fishing hard. I mean, before I fly fished, you know, just now I'm pretty much 100, percent but wade fishing sabine and calcasieu lakes was that's what i did from november no not even november probably october till april maybe in the june but usually in late april once you start catching hardheads on a catch five or corky or something yeah. it's time to put the top waters on and then go drift and mm-hmm. mid-bay stuff but i've caught some caught 110 over there i've caught nines and i don't know how many eights and sevens just wade fishing and it was. You ever, you ever fish the um, the big Sabine Reef, the big oyster reef uh, in the South Shore? Line? South Shore. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Drifted that. Um, drifting that with you know bouncing off the bottoms, not the most fun I've had. The first two big trout I've ever caught were with a guide drifting that in ten, twelve foot of water, yeah. throwing top waters of all things. So we we uh, two sevens I did almost back to back. We worked with Parks and Wildlife to those are big fish. We worked with Parks and Wildlife to expand that mm-hmm. that reef, and they just finished the deployment of material out there. So there's another. Oh, almost. I think our expansion that we helped out was was like 25 acres, and then they added more to it. So I think well, a whole 100 yeah. acre total that they're trying to expand that yeah. that thing. So um, that's just such a good fishery. Yeah, just, and that reef it was amazing. We went over it with their side scan, Parks and Wildlife side scan. So you're just going, and you're at, you're at 12 feet or whatever depth, and all of a sudden you're at 6 feet. I mean, there's almost 6 really? feet of relief. Wow. Um, I have to get those GPS coins. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And that's the only reef on the Texas coast that it's not commercially fished. Yeah. Um, so that tells you what that, you know, if you leave alone, it tells mm-hmm. you what it could do over many decades. Yeah. So it's impressive. Yeah, I mean, living over there, I, I personally never caught or seen a tarpon over there, but triple tail, you know, I've kind of learned about how they breed and, you know, their cycles and catching triple tail out in the, you know, out front over there, jacks, bull reds, and then, you know, the big trout, and you have the marsh, and sheephead, a late, what's the, uh, it's, what's Labor Day, the Memorial Day, Memorial Day, the Labor Day? Memorial Day. The Labor Day, I always yeah. get those confused. Yeah. I'll probably get that Because you're working both, yeah, probably. <laughs> I get that confused my whole life. But, um, 
Yeah, the second one, it was one year right at the end of the CCA tournament, and we got in the marsh, Plymouth the Sabine Marshes, and the sheephead were schooled up in there, and we sidecasted. Seven-pounder was um, probably the biggest that we caught, and it wasn't even the biggest that we saw. I mean, just, but it was hundreds of them. And they were just spawning this one little area. Oh, and then we went back like two weeks later. and nothing, nothing. Now they're gone. Yeah, they were gone. They were moved out. But, yeah, it's just such a diverse fishery. It's got a lot of, a lot of fresh water coming in and, yeah. you know, the salt water there. And it's a rich ecosystem. Oh, man. Really super good marshes. And, you know, I, that's a, a year or two after I graduated, I made friends with a biologist at Lamar University. Excuse me. And uh, we became fishing buddies. And got some gillnet survey you know studies from him and got to study some of that and he was doing marsh uh, marsh shrimp studies mm -hmm. shrimp migration studies for some of the marshes and getting to hear and learn from that of what time of year this shrimp moves in what time of year does this shrimp hatch and per capita of shrimp in some of these marshes were at certain times of his study was the most in the state of texas you know coming out of this little that marsh one, system yeah, yeah. Of the studies, you know, yeah. now I'm sure there's different marshes that never even got studied or looked at. But, yeah, just knowing that and you live there and you're going to fish it and you look around in certain times of winter and no one's around you and you're catching eight-pound trout and there's no one around you mm -hmm. and just, oh, it was it was cool. I got to meet some interesting people over the years uh, from fishing and still do, you know, with the, obviously with the skiff company and yeah. traveling around and it's uh, that's probably – one of the other benefits of doing this type of work is who you meet, you know, and who you get to fish with, who you get to hunt with, and stuff like that. So. Yeah, you get to make some lifelong friends in oh, this yeah. business. Yeah. You get to go to some cool places. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to I wanna wrap this one up. First of all, thanks for coming down here and doing this one. But it, um, I'd like to give the last last cast to the to the guest of the show. So if you got any anything you want to leave – um, the listeners with or those uh, watching online with um, could be how to contact you or just your philosophy your thoughts <laughs> on uh, a little little bit of uh, Brian's wisdom here yeah man you set me up here I wasn't ready for this one but now uh, if y'all want to get a hold of us at Sabine Skiffs you can go to our website and it's uh, sabineskiffs.com we have Instagram Facebook if you want to follow us that way um, phone number or, or email i guess is the best way is it sales at ultralightbootworks.com okay. but the phone number will be on the website in case it changes we get that big we get a new phone number <laughs> i'm not even going to say it because i don't want people calling my cell no, phone yeah, in 10 I'm years no i'm joking <laughs> but yeah go to the, go to the website for all the contact information but uh obviously this website's about the most neutral place you can send people these days but yeah you know i want to thank everybody that's listening if, if some young person's listening and you have a passion in your life uh you know focus on it study it you know, I'm, I'm gonna read something and uh that i think no matter what you do in life this this guy i, I heard him talking about it he was a uh, engraver on fiddles i was watching you know through this freeze i was watching youtube videos and uh -huh. i got this on this long music video and he said if you study and try to learn something as if you have no talent and then apply it as if you didn't study I'm a big component of do not knock someone off. Do not just go straight copy someone's product or the way they do a business or whatever. So what he was getting at on his engravings is he studied it for years. He knew what other engravers did. But yet when he goes to engrave, he studies them so he doesn't copy doesn't. them on purpose. So he's, he knows kind of what to be unique about. Yeah. 
and that's one thing we've really pushed the presidents on our skiffs is yes some length and widths and all can you know be similar to other boats on the market but i do my best to try to be different to have our own shape our own designs and not copy stuff you know we start from scratch drawings so study something if you have a passion on it so you know the history of it but then find your own way and apply it in your own manner and you will be successful you will be genuine enough if you have a good product people will come to you brian, that's what i'm gonna leave brian little that is perfect thank you for joining the podcast yeah, thanks I for having it, buddy. me and thanks for having me at this facility absolutely this is, yeah thanks c center yeah all right safe travels friend. yeah buddy thank you